Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tej Talks podcast. You know what I cannot get out of my head right now is Disney's Encanto. What an incredible film. Probably my favorite film of the year. Your kids might like it. You should like it. It's just incredible. Lin-Manuel Miranda, what a genius. Hamilton, Encanto, and he's done In the Heights, which is also stuck in my head. But yeah, Disney's Encanto, what a good film. Got to number one as well. Anywho, I'm not here to talk about Disney. We're talking about property. So on today's show, I have Sacha and Tim. They recently JV'd on some BRRHMOs. Both have their kind of various experience beforehand. Uh, Tim was an RAF medical support officer and Sasha was in the Royal Navy. She is in the Royal Navy. Now, today's quite interesting because we spoke about, you know, working together, you know, finding each other, the kind of things you need to do to vet your JV partner and maybe what complementary skills you should have that, um, you know, make it easier to work together and how you work together. Now, they've both got their own lives that they're balancing alongside their JVs and HMOs. So if you're looking to HMOs, you're looking to pull some money out of them and you want to understand how to get a, a much higher yield than you would, you know, if you were just doing you know, a ready-made HMO or something like that, then you need to listen to this. Also go on Amazon and get my books. I have two books. Funny people DM me. Oh, I never knew you had a book. Yeah. Behind the Bricks and the Tej Talks Guide to Property Investing. Sasha and Tim, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Now, it's not often actually that I've had JV partners on here. I don't know. I don't know why. So I'm quite looking forward to, you know, as, as well as discussing what you've done, how you've done it and kind of how you met. But I also really want to talk about like how you work together and, and then also give some tips to people listening about how they can find a JV partner. Um, because I think it's one of the most commonly asked questions. People are always looking for a JV partner, whether it's to fund it, whether it's to do a bit of both. So if anyone listening, if you're looking for a business partner, a JV partner, uh, then yeah, this is going to be the episode for you. But before we get into all that good stuff, what were you both doing or maybe are still doing before you got into property? Sasha, do you want to go first on that one? Yeah, certainly. So I'm a serving uh, Royal Navy officer, and I'm still doing that. Uh, but certainly, um, an interest which I've had for about nearly 20 years, really, has been like a bit of a sideline in property. So either buying up property, doing a light refurb, selling it on or renting it out. Um, I dabbled in um, single lets and uh, uh, small HMOs. And uh, I really decided at the start of 2019, I kind of wanted to take it seriously. And so I started attending property networking meetings with a view really that uh, my, you know, my second career after I left the service was to be property development. And so um, realizing quickly that you actually have to have slightly more than just a bit of money, you need a bit of education and your network, etc. Behind you, I sort of lengthened my plan before like leaving the service. So hence why I'm still serving. Um, But certainly I wanted to sort of gain, you know, I suppose vocational experience on the job. And um, that's why I sort of sort of started getting into property development and um, 
And then I met Tim actually at the very first property networking meeting uh, back in January 2019. And uh, Tim I suppose in a way, you know, the pair of us sort of, I suppose it was a fairly slow start to our relationship, really. Um, And uh, Tim and I sort of share various similarities in terms of like like our background and professionally. And um, I think, you know, as our relationship has grown over the past couple of years, um, culminating in our first joint venture in uh, really being agreed in January 2021. So it took a little bit of time for us to sort of like warm up to the point where we're going to do a joint venture, a proper joint venture. Um, and uh, th- there was like other instances of our, you know, I suppose professional relationship growing, which I'll let uh, Tim expand on as he introduces himself. Okay. Um, well, yeah, yes, prior to um, 2017, I was. Uh, uh, an officer in the Royal Air Force for six and a half years. Um, and I left that in December 2016. So from January um, 2017, I've been full-time in property. Um, prior to that, I had been an accidental landlord, if you like, and dabbled in property a little bit, but on a very amateur level. Um, so I carried on um, from January 2017 for the next sort of about four years, building up an HMO portfolio a student of student properties in Bangor in North Wales. Um, and then since uh, since the beginning of this year, really, um, I've sort of joint ventured with Sasha, and that's how we've bought the last two eight-bedroom HMOs this year. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people, I suppose, if we can talk about JVs, would maybe start and firstly ask, why did you both want to JV, or why were you both considering it? Because obviously, you know, property can be done alone, can be done with multiple people, like a lot of businesses. You know, what made you both sort of consider it and want to do it? Well, uh, it's okay, Tim, I'll, I'll pick this one up. So yeah. um, I started actually out in another JV um, fairly soon after I started my property journey. And um, we were due to do a um, office to resi conversion. And effectively, the deal fell through fairly early on in. And we, as a partnership, decided we were going to continue to look for more projects. And this kind of went on for a year. And I suppose I got to know my joint venture partners a little bit more, um, I suppose, in depth. And there were three of us. And I suppose with one person, I kind of sort of continued sort of growing as a relationship, the other person sort of less so. And so eventually, when that partnership broke down, I was quite clear, actually, in terms of like what I wanted in a in a business partner. And at the same time, um, Tim and I's relationship have been growing as I had um, lent him uh, finance on a couple of his projects that he had done. And so I knew how Tim operated. I, you know, we'd meet up socially with another ex-forces friend of ours. And, you know, we would, I suppose, you know, as I understood like his standards and I knew that he was like a, you know, his great, you know, values and really is like very trustworthy and loyal and committed to projects. And those all sort of, I suppose, values that I was looking for in a business partner myself. And of course, you know, um, I suppose Tim was following my journey. And I, and I know at the time he was a bit like, I don't want to joint venture with anybody. <laughs> so uh, sort of eventually, and to be honest, I didn't really sort of ask him, really. It was, I, I think we just sort of arrived to it at the end of um, 20, uh, at the end of 2020. And uh, yeah, Tim, do you, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose give a bit of context. So I suppose for just under four years, I've been investing full time in property. Through that time, I bought seven properties and sold two, um, predominantly using the 
you know, the buy, refurbish, refinance, uh, rent model. I'd ended up really with, um, uh, five HMOs, 28 rooms and a, and a cafe restaurant, which I all rent out. And that provided me a really good income. I sort of created like a little monster where it's quite a lot to manage by myself, etc. My cash pot, even though I'd recycled it quite a lot, had, uh, had gone down a bit and I, I realized where my strengths lay and they were probably, at the top, or what I enjoyed, perhaps I probably could turn my hand to some things, but I enjoyed finding the deal. I enjoyed sort of project managing the the refurbs, uh, and I suppose I got some satisfaction from seeing the property refurbished at the end, and uh, and then sort of moving on to the next next project. I wasn't that sort of keen or prolific at all in sort of social media or things like this, um, and also just the the sheer amount of work involved had become a little bit cumbersome, really. Plus. Uh, my finances had gone down a little bit. So um, I wasn't necessarily looking for a JV partner at all, but I was aware of Sasha. She'd lent me some money on a, on a sort of fixed rate return basis before, which I'd, I'd pay back. And I felt Sasha was somebody that I could work with. Uh, I did know she had, a, you know, some money saved up that she wanted to invest in property too. So it really was me finding, you know, these two HMO, eight bed HMO properties that I thought actually this would be easier with two of us. For a number of reasons, I suppose financially, but also it'd be easier to have somebody who perhaps complements my skills. We don't have, I'm not saying we couldn't do what each other does, but our skill sets are different and they complement each other. And we are both come from a sort of well established armed forces background. So we do have shared values and standards. So it was me that approached Sasha because over time, and we're talking probably years here, I got to know her and I felt comfortable and reassured that I could be successful in property and business with her. Mm. And, you know, you kind of mentioned there, you've known each other for years and, and there was a loan there. So I suppose there's two things. One is that the loan was paid back. That was all good. There's a big, I don't know, sort of a bunch of trust that gets added when that kind of first happens. And obviously having a couple of years is that you've had time to understand and to know each other, which, you know, makes a big difference. There's a lot of people who, you know, want you know, they've learned property, they've read a book, they've done whatever, and they want a JV partner, they want an investor, they go to a networking event, they go to whatever it is, and they want to sort of JV with the first person they meet, and they want to sort of get into it quickly, because, you know, we've got to buy houses and stuff. What are your sort of general thoughts on, you know, actually finding a JV partner? Should people rush in and just jump with the first person who has 100 grand to their name? Um, well, I, I don't mind starting with that one. I mean, generally, no. I mean, you could be lucky, I suppose, and just meet somebody who just happens to meet, you know, be everything you want from a JV partner. I suppose I, I look at joint ventures and it's a very broad term, not in terms of just um, having a fixed rate return loan. That is more just a, a business loan. Looking about maybe, you know, where somebody's got a share of the equity or a share of the actual profit at the end. So I would say that really to be a successful JV partnership, you have to know, like, and trust the person, have the same values and standards and be on the same path and have the same goals. And I would think it's unlikely that you're going to, you know, know that until you get to know somebody over a period of time. And there's no substitute for that, really, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, getting to know people on a deeper level really kind of it makes a difference because it's easy for someone to appear like everything you want or everything you need on in, in the first meeting. But actually and values is a big thing you said they're getting to know someone's values is really what kind of separates a potential business partner jv partner from a yeah this isn't going to work because you're basically commercially tied to each other 
your credit scores can be linked within this company. You're signing potentially six, seven, eight figure loans together. You know, there's a lot that kind of goes into it. So, you know, for, for both of you or for one of you, when you were considering this JV, um, or even I suppose for people listening, did you have a, a checklist where they're kind of key things that a JV partner has to provide um, for you to kind of want to get into it? Mainly, I suppose, for people listening who are unsure of what they should be looking for. I don't think I had a specific checklist. Um, I think I learned a sort of by doing and I'd already had one partnership that had effectively failed um, behind me. And so I think I realised what was important. Um, so one point I would like to make, though, is it's, it's not about friendship. In fact, actually, I think almost initially you can't I don't think Tim and I would ever um have outlined ourselves as like deep friends like to be relied upon or we had that kind of as the basis of our relationship first off I think I think sort of it was more like acquaintances mutual respect you know um we would certainly be like occasionally seeing each other around the bazaars at different networking events or we had as I said mentioned that we had another friend just sort of I suppose like join joint friend and that's he um this guy was ex-navy which i had that connection and then um and then this other friend was i was also a veteran which i suppose you know was more akin to uh tim um i think what i want knew that i wanted in a business partner was somebody who i think was um able to deliver and not just about ideas um which is predominantly actually my skill set <laughs> I'm very good at I suppose relationship building and you know finance investor finance drawing that in um, and also marketing public relations that, that I suppose those things I'm I'm extremely good at I think for me I knew where my skill set was my preferences probably more are less developed in terms of um, you know I, I'm all up for like breaking in like down a house and like taking everything up, whether or not I'm so much into coordinating like the plumber coming in with the electrician or, you know, whatever. Um, that's probably not my, 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 my specialty. So I think it was knowing myself, knowing where I wasn't so um, interested in a particular part of property development, but then knowing what I'm, what I bring in terms of like my other skill sets. So for me, it was understanding that. And then knowing that Tim, uh, Tim was very good in, you know, project management and delivery and finding the deals, et cetera. Uh, so it was, I, I think it was just a combination. I certainly didn't have a checklist. I would say though, that um, sort of a key point is, is underpinning this, you have to be upfront and very, you know, direct in understanding who you're exactly dealing with. So like understanding their finances upfront, I think, you know, if you have a business, potential business partner who isn't happy to share their financial position with you, I, I mean, it is, you know, a personal question, but I think you do need to be able to be very, um, you know, I think transparent and also to underpin it with like, um, you know, an agreement where things are laid out in advance as to, you know, how it's going to be between your relationship, what happens if one person can't continue, et cetera, so that there's no um, grey areas. I think it's quite important. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned a lot there and the kind of being upfront is so central because if you're not upfront from day one, when things go wrong on site, if there's difficulty, if there's challenges when it comes to money and if someone's not upfront, upfront, then, you know, I don't know how it can progress and actually have an honest, open, successful relationship later. So for everyone listening, like 
if you don't feel comfortable talking to your JV partner or you don't feel comfortable asking, I mean, you might be awkward asking, but you know, they're not responding well to it or they're making excuses, then for me, it's a bit of a red flag. I mean, I, I get like full credit reports, insurances, all everything from like any potential JV partner. And it's a, a real discussion about what have you done? How did that work? How were the finances of that? Where are you at now? And you know, you said there about if things change in the future, like having a JV agreement, which, you know, solicitors will charge a, a fair amount for sometimes, um, you know, it is vital. It is necessary in case someone changes their mind in the future or, you know, we're humans, we have lives, we have things that affect us. So, you know, that's definitely really important. Now, at the start, you kind of spoke about um, kind of friends versus colleagues and then kind of business partners. Do you think that um, friends would make better or worse JV partners? Um, I don't mind. Actually, I've never been asked that before, but just adding from the checklist question, I think that the two things, and this leads on to the, the friend aspect, I suppose, is that um, I didn't have a checklist, but I was fully aware from listening to lots of podcasts and other articles that you want to sort of have a JV with somebody perhaps who complements your skills or you complement each other, most importantly. You don't want a carbon copy of yourself, which is something that I may have done a few years ago. You want to, you don't want to be sort of try, both trying to do the same thing. And I think myself and Sasha do complement each other. And then again, I think another thing I was aware of is you have to be able to sort of feel you can get on with this person. You get to know them. What are they like under stress? Whatever. You get to see a side of them where you feel you could approach this person um, and, you know, be transparent with them and they and they with you, really. And you could get on with them. So I don't think you need to be friends to work together. Um, I haven't I can't really draw on any experience to say I've JV'd with close friends or anything. Um, I just think you need to go back to what do you want from a JV partner? And if that friend happens to, you know, meet those, the you know, compliment you and then meet those goals, you have shared values, et cetera, then I don't suppose it would matter if they if they are friends or not. What I would say is if they are a friend of yours, you're much more likely to know if you have the same, same shared values and standards than if they're not. So you could perhaps get to the JV stage a bit quicker if you already know their background. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that makes total sense. And, you know, and that's why it's important, right, to understand the other person's situation and their skills. And, and you know, like you both kind of said, the areas you're you're kind of stronger in to complement each other. And, and Sasha, a question for you in particular. Now, I remember from reading your bio, you said you have four children under the age of 13 living with you um, whilst your husband works in France. How do you personally manage property which you know is like a full-time job in of itself and life any tips for people who are maybe kind of juggling or, or balancing the same sort of things uh oh, I don't know if I have any tips I just you know I, I suppose I just have a very strong interest and belief in um you know just trying to manage my life in a in a way that's going to make sure that I can achieve what I say I'm going to do um obviously I think being just really up on my organization is really key uh, I work full-time and um and my job is not in uh is luckily I've I've been able to uh 
manage it so I can work part from partly from home and but as a couple of days I do have to actually go into London so you know I I do have to have that support network as a childminder behind me um, and uh, you know j- just ensuring that uh, you know I don't overcommit myself but also at the same time you know that I'm still doing what I want to do so um, I'm fortunate that the business partner that I've chosen is full-time in property and uh, so you know, I think we are always quite frank in terms of, you know, yeah, you do this and I'll do that. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I know I can be a bit behind, like, you know, if I'm say I'm going to go and edit a video, then <laughs> I may suddenly be like a week late in doing that. But that, that said, um, my I suppose my own, you know, my own background in the military is that something is like, you know, you when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. And so, you know, if I sometimes end up working till like one or two in the morning after I put all the kids to bed, like trying to like finish something like a, I don't know, like an investor presentation or something, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have the goods and, and deliver it. And, and Tim knows that because we're effectively from, you know, a similar, I suppose, pipeline of people coming out of the military. He knows as a, you know, the kind of person that I am that I will, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So, uh, yeah, that, that's just, I suppose, no particular tips, I suppose. It's just a, uh, my single, uh, I suppose single-minded focus upon, you know, obviously I've got my family. I need to ensure that they're all looked after. Um, but I sort of sort of see this in a, in a way as my future. When I eventually leave the Navy, I will go into property development, you know, for full time. And uh, this, you know, hopefully then that will allow me actually more time to um, look after the kids and, uh, you know, it's uh, and uh, I suppose have more of a, um, a better work-life balance because uh, my career is quite a busy one. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of am now looking as like what's my next step outside and just preparing yeah. myself that way. That makes sense. And, you know, is there a – because a lot of people are – you know, I suppose one of the biggest debates sort of pre-property, I suppose, is when people say, well, should I quit my job now? Should I have this many saving, this much cash flow, this many deals? Oh, but then I won't get lending. There's always a kind of, everyone's got an opinion on when you should quit your job to go full-time in property. Um, have you, Sasha, or Tim, I know you have done this already, but, you know, <laughs> is there a particular sort of, uh, is there a plan for when you would kind of go full-time, whether it's monetary-based or anything else? Well, I think Tim's um, story is slightly different from mine. Um, I have quite a lot of, I suppose, responsibility in terms of my my, uh, my husband up until relatively recently was uh, studying for a PhD. So he was financially reliant upon me and wasn't um, earning. And then my children, obviously, I'm responsible for them too. Uh, so with those kind of that sort of site, that, that, um, I suppose that that side of it to think about, I was quite adamant that, you know, whilst I wanted to get into property and I did have some money saved, I knew that I couldn't really commit to it. I think full time, just because there's just too much risk involved for me and my circumstances. Um, So I'm looking at, you know, getting myself to a point where um, I've got like a, uh, you know, like a like a pipeline and a flow going into you know my my property investment. You know, I've got the experience that the lenders can look at me. You know, I've still got the income which is attractive to mortgage. You know, to uh, you know when when I'm I'm talking to lenders as well for my own personal circumstances. So I have that income support. Um, I think. Uh, you know, as I as I allocate more time, you know, as, as when, when you're actually transitioning out of the military, they give you like uh, graduated resettlement time. So, um, you know, I can utilize that to apportion more time towards the business as I move out of the military in my last couple of years. 
Um, but uh, I know Tim has a slightly different story. So, Tim. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any sort of golden formula upon when anybody should, that you can apply to anybody to say you should or shouldn't really take the leap and go full time. I would probably say that if you could, um, the best thing to do is to sort of, you know, maybe reduce your full time working hours, start to take on more property related work. So you make that process as smooth and, uh, you know, as stress free as possible. So if you could sort of, you know, take on a bit of property, take on less of your full time job before you know it, a year later, you'll sort of leave your job and then go full time in property. Um, I think it depends upon everybody's individual circumstances. I, I actually just left my job one day and decided, obviously, then became a full-time property investor the next day. But that that was planned. Um, I suppose I had the carrot and stick approach. My job in the military was akin to an NHS manager, really. And I find I found the sort of process quite bureaucratic, quite frustrating at times. And, um, you know, you didn't really see a lot of the output that you wanted to see. So I had the stick there that albeit I could do it, I didn't really want to do it. And also I really enjoy property. I'd had a, I'd been an accidental landlord. I'd worked in the building site many years ago and things like this. So I knew what I wanted to do. So I had the the pool there and I had the sort of the stick element where I didn't want to do it. So I was really motivated to make it a success. It also happened to fall into place when I left the forces, got a cash lump sum, also fell into place when I was actually getting uh, in an um, amicable divorce so I had a had a cash lump sum of about £100,000 and I thought if I don't do it now I, I'm never going to do it and I used that money to live off um, but also to find deals and to get going and I would have been quite prepared after six or eight months if it hadn't been successful to perhaps go and work for the NHS because I'd given it a go but that just a few factors fell into line um, and I am very sort of action focused and I was motivated to just make it work and Fortunately, it has worked. So again, it's um, it's up to every every individual. But I would say a blended approach where you slowly give up your job and increase your your time and property would be the best thing, I suppose. Yeah, no, I I like that. And yeah, definitely the central thing is that it is personal to everyone. You know, everyone's situation, like you both have different situations. Everyone listening is going to have you know different responsibilities, financial or not, different time responsibilities. So you know, it's definitely worth looking at yourself, your goals, you know, speaking to your broker, making sure you have lending, speaking to your accountant, you know, working it all out on a technical kind of technical element of it, but then also looking at, is this possible? Is this feasible? How do I get there? How much do I need saved up to do this? So if we talk about, you know, the kind of the deal deals you've done together, um, firstly, where do you both live? I live in Portsmouth. And I live in Fairham, which is uh, just over the harbour from Portsmouth, which is okay. on the south coast. So where you've invested is feels quite far from where you live. So could you maybe tell us where you invest and why you invest there um, as opposed to closer to home? I mean, uh, I think Sasha's sort of followed me up to Bangor, if you like. So I invested <laughs> there first. So when I left the forces uh, in January uh, 2017 I started looking at areas that hadn't recovered from the previous recession in 2008 I started looking at places north of Birmingham the closest place actually was Newport and South Wales I started looking at Wales I was monitoring a few areas when I was looking at Wales um, Banger came up too with the property now I was focused on the student HMO market because I've been an 
accidental landlord of a property which I turned into a student HMO in Portsmouth so I could see straight away that the cash flow benefits of an HMO compared to a single let were, were very good. So I was focused on student HMO properties. It just so happened that the white property came up um, in auction in uh, Bangor. I was successful post-auction getting that property. And so once I was up in, in Bangor, I decided to make that my base. It is uh, a five-hour drive plus breaks, but I've become quite attuned to doing it now and a bit less so as I've become established up there and have a, a network of contacts and, and tradespeople. So that's really how... I got involved in Banger and I approached Sasha with the two deals we've done this year, which I'd already presently secured uh, in Banger. Hmm. Five, do you say five hours with breaks? Five hours plus breaks. I'd say five and a half. (laughs) (laughs) That is a journey. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about the the figures of your, um, your eight bed HMO, I think people might understand why. Um, But, I suppose investing remotely brings so many challenges, I think, in every element of it. Um, I think that the lettings and management might be the easiest element, but finding it, um, refurbing it, working with builders at a distance is just, I hate working with builders when they're close to me. So um, at a distance, I, yeah, it's it was tough. So because you're both sort of far from the location, how do you manage I suppose we start at the beginning of the process. How do you manage finding deals when if something comes on the market, you potentially can be there same day, but realistically there's going to be people who are local who are beating you to every viewing, getting their offers in quicker. Um, And a lot of people who listen are going to be concerned. Oh, if I invest far from home, you know, I'm going to miss out. I'm going to be slower. How do you manage that? And are there different expectations you have because it's further away? Um, I mean, I'll start on this one then. Just, um, I perhaps should just qualify that it wasn't my choice. It wasn't my actual preference, I should say, to invest far away from home. Ideally, I would invest on my doorstep. But essentially, the yields that I was after, I was after sort of, you know, income generating properties. There's just much more opportunity away from the southeast. So um, that's why I invested away really to get the the cash flow. Um, people say sometimes that if you invest further away, well, okay, the properties are two thirds of the price, but the rents are two thirds. They're not actually the rents the students pay in Bangor are comparable to what the students are paying for properties in Southampton or Portsmouth. But the properties are like two thirds of the price. So that that's why people go up north really for that sort of. Uh, uh, benefit as such um but but it but it's not easy really i don't know if you've got anything else to add sasha uh no uh, i think in terms of um you know what the i suppose the benefit of, of focusing on on a particular area is that you know this is i think tim's seventh deal is it eighth deal because you've done a couple of flips as well or maybe it's ninth i can't even remember <laughs> but anyway is that you you know you definitely get to know the estate agents um, and Bangor is, I suppose, like a smaller market. It's also, I think, um, maybe a little bit more looked o- uh, overlooked than, say, for example, other markets such as like Liverpool and, you know, like the, the, the larger towns which are up in that north uh, western area. Um, I think also the fact that we have established relationships with uh, like our own builders, et cetera, that's also, I suppose, softens the blow or makes it slightly more attractive in that we know we've got people we can rely upon. So I, I, again, it comes down to this, like setting up the team and then Tim being full time in property that obviously really helped from the get go. He was able to go up there, spend the time, build the relationships. Um, 
that I think is key. Again, it's, it's, it's knowing the right people, it's having that network, it's having access to that sort of soft power, that knowledge, um, which I think for us makes it still an attractive area and worth you know, the, the distance involved. Yeah. I mean, I think I was going to say, Tess, I think, well, um, it has been a very bumpy journey getting to where I am now, but I think I've sort of, um, now where we are in sort of 2021, I have been able to establish, um, you know, I've weeded out some some bad builders, et cetera. I've established a good network of contacts that I can rely upon. Um, and it's much easier now for me to be a bit more hands-off because I do have that trusted um, network of people but it was a difficult process getting to that stage um and it was just fortunate that i had found mm-hmm. sort of some good properties um and i bought most of my properties actually uh post or pre-auction so that that's been helpful in sort of you know securing properties quickly and not being sort of gazumped or outbid or having properties fall through mm. i think you know that that is the reality of it you know it, it takes time and if people are listening, it, it does take time. It does take bumps in the road, you know, challenges, getting rid of bad builders, like you said, to be at a stage where it can be more hands-off. And, and auctions, it's a great point there. Like, it's such a good way to buy deals, you know, when you're remote versus, oh, let me do 20, 30 viewings, put all these offers in, keep them up and down, up and down to get, oh, then they've pulled out. Oh, I've been gazumped. Auction, it's kind of, and nowadays you've got the 3D tours, the Matterport stuff, you can almost, I personally have done this, but you can almost not view it and buy it and you won't get gazumped. It's just kind of an easier, smoother process. And if you're doing it pre or post auction, then you know, obviously that has benefits as well. So for people listening, yeah, it does take time. So don't beat yourself up if it's not happening straight away. And you know, on the topic of builders, like, do you have any structures in place for, you know, because you're doing HMOs, so you know, you've got on suites, you've got soil pipes running through the floorboard. You've got a lot of extra stuff that, say, me and sort of buy-to-let land, flip land, who never even think about or concern us. Um, you know, when it comes to managing that and, of course, any planning or any building regs you've also got involved, do you have a sort of structure or project manager or specific way you ensure that the refurb is done properly and on time and managed right? Um, well, I am the project manager, really. So, one of the ways I've been able to recycle the money or get, you know, keep the costs down is by project managing. And I don't mean by appointing a main contractor or having a, a JCT contract. Um, the refurbs are just about small enough or manageable enough, if you like, that I, I can do that. So I will appoint all the trades. I have in recent times, we've, I've done two extensions of properties of my own. I have um, appointed now regularly an architectural technologist who will give plans, who will you know, identify where the radiators and sockets go. So when I'm not there, it does allow the trays to come in and with a bit of guidance, see where everything needs to go. So so I think that that's really how I sort of overcome um, that, that aspect, really. Mm. And, you know, you are doing student HMOs. So, you know, I think a lot of people, when we talk about HMOs, tend to instantly think, you know, uh, professional tenants, working tenants, that sort of thing, or maybe even like social housing on, on FRI kind of leases. But, you know, one, apart from the area, I suppose, being near university, what made you want to do student accommodation? And, you know, I remember my student accommodation was crap and that wasn't too long ago. Um, so talk to me about the quality and finish that you aim for or you produce in your HMOs. I don't know, Sasha, you want to do that one or? 
Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, uh, so, so certainly in terms of the, the, I suppose, the market niche that we look at is we're certainly um, towards the top of, you know, the, I suppose, residential, you know, large Victorian terraced houses. We're not quite, we're not competing with the halls of residence, um, you know, with more the bigger um, uh, professional uh, investor um, groups that you get uh, coming in. So um, we aim to have um, a really nice, um, finish um, we uh, ensure that our communal areas are all quite like a nice high spec we haven't quite gone to the point where we're putting televisions in every single room um, our locations um, certainly for the latest two properties are you know within 250 meters of the um, campus so fantastic location we offer parking um, you know we I suppose so. So we're we're sort of towards the top. We're not the top. We're not sort of like luxurious, but we're extremely, you know, very nice finishes. We, we maintain things to a really good standard. So our our um, our clientele, obviously the students, but also the bank of mum and dad, because that's the I suppose the guarantors behind our tenants. That's I suppose one of our key attractions, and that we know that they're going to be there for a set period of time, and we know that the income is going to be there. Um, so I think that's one of our, you know, a key thing is ensuring that we're attracting quality tenants who have the means to pay um, and, you know, just ensuring that they enjoy living in our properties. Um, so with nice big communal spaces, for example, so that people, you know, we find that our tenants, they want to have that shared space and, you know, and also have their, their properties. Now, I know that other um, properties that, Tim has in his portfolio have all on suites, for example, but those locations might not be quite so attractive. So, Tim, do you uh, do you want to? Yeah, add I mean, I I that? really like the student HMO market. I, you know, I know there's sort of three types of HMO property that I think of: the professional type property, maybe ones for universal credit or low income people, and then students. I mean, you very rarely have voids in student properties. You've got a guaranteed income, guarantors, you know, to back up if the students don't pay. Um, I think it's really, you know, you've got very few voids, if ever, at all, really. So uh, I have seen the student market change over the years. And the, uh, um, to be successful now and future-proof yourself, you do need to go for a sort of high-end finish. Uh, and perhaps where the properties are a little bit further away, you've got to perhaps give, you know, a good number of ratio of bathrooms to bedrooms or sometimes en suite. What I've really sort of got feedback from students on, I've got some properties that have a really large or, you know, relatively good size communal area. And by that, I mean a combined kitchen, living room. That's been really successful. And perhaps things like COVID have actually sort of rubber stamped that or made that more of a priority for students, perhaps more than en suites, because if they are going to be locked down, if they are going to be sort of stuck in a house together, having a really good communal area, um, you know, really allows them to socialise and still get on with their university party life to some extent if they are going to be locked in so so i think yeah high end high end uh uh a finish really uh and then just a good location of course and then just i suppose yeah you know good ratio of bathrooms to bedrooms and a good communal area i think you're going to future proof yourself then and you're probably going to be you know up to the standard required for the next five to ten years yeah that absolutely makes sense and when it comes to the management of students do you find that, I suppose, maybe there's not a, um, a professional HMO there to maybe compare them directly to, but kind of people maybe don't talk as positively about the management of students. Um, 
do you think that that kind of is true or do you find that your agent or if you're managing it yourself doesn't really have much to do um i mean i've managed properties myself and use an agent i suppose um i have found it easier and quicker doing it myself than using an agent so i would love to some extent to give to give an agent a month my money to take away some stress for me now as i've got more properties it's a bit more complex than that you think you can manage a property yourself but when you've got several of them 28 rooms now 44 rooms it becomes quite time consuming so i can see when you scale up there comes a point where you have to sort of employ an agent just to keep track of all the mandatory documentation all the random calls you get in but i think students as a tenant group get a bit of a bad rep um on i've had one property that was left in a really bad state this year but actually that's the exception and on the whole they're, they're pretty good you know i don't find it too much i mean they might be a bit messy etc but they aren't you know they don't leave the kitchen door doors or cupboard doors hanging off they don't punch holes and walls or anything and probably i think by providing a really high-end you know product and having an inventory at the beginning perhaps they treat it with a bit more respect than some of the old really tired rundown properties where they aren't looked after so so i think that's kind of kind of helped it really so i i don't find them difficult to manage really but i don't have any direct experience of um other groups but all i say is when you're getting regular income with no voids, it kind of makes up for any little, um, you know, inconveniences, let's say. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, it, it sort of comes with the territory, I suppose, with a HMO above a buy-to-let, whichever sort of type of HMO it is, there's potentially going to be a bit more management, you know, for people who are doing single lets or who aren't even doing either yet, you know, each strategy or each approach brings its own level of, management and then within it the tenant type then brings its own kind of level of management and you know let's because you know we've kind of said you know you invest at a distance because of the yield and it, it makes it worth it um and i'm sure most people can imagine what the yields are like in the south if you don't live here they're, they're generally crap um although flipping down here can, can be pretty good uh, your college road eight bed hmo could you talk us through like some top level figures of that so the people listening can understand you know i suppose in numbers and in money you know why it's worth it going that far and why it's worth it kind of building something at a distance perhaps yeah i mean i've got the figures here so um we bought two properties 20 and 22 college road um we negotiated a price um for two hundred ten thousand each so one of them's complete now, one's still ongoing the refurb, the one that's completed rented out. So the purchase price for that was £210,000. Um, the total money that we spent on it, including the refurb, all legal fees, architectural technologist fees, HMO license fees, everything really, um, that came to £85,000. Um, so the total cost in are £295,000. We remortgaged it at 75% loan-to-value mortgage. Now, we wanted a 375000 valuation, but um, the valuer came back with three fifty. But, okay, so we still managed to sort of pull most of our money out. Um, by the time we remortgaged, we'd also had uh, £5,000 income of rent. So it basically means that we um, left in about £38,000 of our own money between us, um, and it gives a sort of return on capital employed of about 56%. It's actually going to be more than that because the first year we got it rented to the council um, and actually give us a £30,000 um, 
net profit for the first year, whereas after that, it's going to be about a £22,000 net profit. So all your money back within about 18 months um, and then a really high-end um, competitive property in a A1 plus location. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, solid figures. You know, people have to ask yourself, you know, where are you getting 56%? You know, where are you getting an investment where, like you said, your money's out in 18 months? And then after that, it's just profit. It's, you know, the ROI number is whatever you want to kind of call it after that. And that's, you know, the down valuation thing is, uh, you know, when you said that, I just thought classic. Oh, you know, they always do it. It always happens on on all strategies, no matter what you're doing. Certain surveyors uh, just can't do their job properly. Um, don't value things correctly, and and that should be a warning and a lesson for everyone listening. That you know, when you do your end value calculations, firstly you need to know how to do them, but secondly, you know, you need to have a contingency because, like Tim said, this deal still works. You know, it's still a great deal. Of course, if it got three seven five, hey. It'd be even better, but at the end of the day, it still works at this, which is you know twenty five grand less than what you wanted. So it's a significant kind of chunk off. Um, it's important that when we're doing deals, when we're holding them, that you know if things do go a bit south, uh, you know you can still hold it, or you still have an exit that's going to protect you moving forward. So you know moving forwards for you two, this is the the first first two deals you've done together obviously went fantastic and hopefully the next one when it gets revalued goes even better um you know what are your plans because we're, we're pretty much at the end of 2021 now almost what are your plans for 2022 and also within that after your first sort of jv experience will you be continuing to jv with each other you yeah. want to go on that one sasha yeah definitely uh yeah no our, our plan is definitely um i think uh we've proven the model uh that you know i, I think for us we uh, when we when we negotiated the deal um for the, the for the two properties but actually we kind of phased it so we did the first property we bought that and then um we sort of i'd say we did a bit of a deal with the um vendor that we would then buy the second property in a different financial year so uh, you know in a way we did it so that we would do the first property just check everything worked for us that we were actually going to get on we were going to work effectively together and of course um you know as with all projects, you know, our, our initial forecast actually wasn't to spend 85,000. It was probably to spend nearer 60. Um, but because we decided to increase the, um, or to rejig the layout a bit more and to ensure that we had a few sort of things like, you know, gas pipes replaced in different areas and also like water, um, you know, ensuring that we had really good water pressure into the, um, into the uh, property so we kind of had like you know slightly more spend that put a little bit of a pressure on I suppose on the on the relationship and that we had to find more money than we'd initially respect um, expected but you know we, we came out of it the other side absolutely fine and so you know second we've done the second project again um, again it's going you know we've got it rented out for next calendar for the next academic year already so you know the, the partnership is working we both feel that we've got complementary skill sets. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I have an interest in the marketing, the public relations, investor, you know, raising finance, etc. Um, and so 
I think, you know, for us going forward, we're definitely, you know, seeking to populate our pipeline and do bigger projects together because, you know, we've, we've got that option. We've both got finances from our side, um, from each side. And we've also got, you know, I think the appetite and the skills to go larger um, than perhaps if we were just doing it by ourselves. Yeah, yes. I, I think as well with, with that, I'll say that, um, you know, I followed a particular strategy for a number of years to, you know, get um to generate income really because i need to live off that and over time i've stopped living off my capital and more than replaced my income with these last two properties so i think it would be we're not constrained by location or type of strategy now so i think we have talked about it and it would be a little bit easier i think or different to look at something maybe a bit closer to home so if there was an opportunity within an hour hour and a half from where we live and there was a lot of property within that uh within an hour's drive um, that would be good. And also to look at, like you say before, Tess, you know, things like flips or conversions or developments of several different units, et cetera. That said, if the right deal came up in Bangor, we would we would go back there. We talked about the value of uh, sort of undervaluing before. I think now moving forward, he based that upon a gross value of um, a gross income of 36,000. Well, straight away, we got 40,000 for 11 months. All the properties, even the one under refurbishment, is already rented out from the 1st of July next year. So all our properties are rented out to the 30th of June, um, 23. And that's in excess of £40,000 gross income. So there is still opportunity up in Bangor. But I, I said we're not constrained now. And we can look at other strategies too. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. Um, where is the best place that people can get a hold of you or follow you on social media? Uh, yeah, so we have um, uh, Instagram and uh, we uh, are also, um, you can find us on LinkedIn and uh, also people can email us. So um, if you have show notes, then I'm happy to supply those. Um, and uh, and yeah, we'd love to hear from people. We've, you know, uh, something we found with our first development was we actually had um, investors that wanted to sort of earn and learn and we were really happy to like welcome them into the fold and to share with them through like uh like zooms etc and you know so we're, we're really happy to share the love share our knowledge share our passion and so yeah if people want to find us on like uh, instagram uh, they can find us at oc living underscore property so that's oc living underscore property and uh, yeah feel free to contact us and uh you know we're very happy to have a chat anytime. Amazing. I will put all the links in the show notes so people go and click them, give them a follow and say hi. Well, all that's left for me to do, Sasha and Tim, is to say thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the Test Talks podcast. Thank you very okay, much. Thank you. thank you. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube for more great content.